The National Archives podcast series, The South African Empire, presented by Dr. Anne Sampson. From as early as the 1650s, settlers in Southern Africa have dreamt of expanding northwards. This paper will focus on South Africa's desire for expansion from the turn of the 20th century through to the 1990s. Before we get to the 20th century though, it is worthwhile, I think, taking a brief look at the earlier history. Settlers arrived in Southern Africa from 1654 under Jan van Riebeck. He had been instructed not to occupy more land than was needed for supplying the company's ships on their travels between Europe and Asia. However, he and subsequent governors paid little heed to the instructions from Holland. Invariably, the cause was citizens moving out of the defined areas to avoid the restrictions placed on them or to explore what lay beyond. Simon van der Stel, after whom Simonstown and Stellenbosch are named, was called recalled to Holland in disgrace after fraternizing with the locals and disobeying orders. We move swiftly onto the colonization of Natal from the southeast. Again settled as a victualling station. From 1803 to 1806, the British took control of the territory following the defeat of the Dutch in European wars. From this point on, one can more clearly see the development of the South African Empire. Britain had direct control of Natal and what became known as the Cape Colony as far as the Fish River. And seemed happy with its lot, sending out settlers in the 1820 to help resolve an unemployment issue in the UK and redress the balance of settler nationality in Southern Africa, that being German, French, Huguenot and English. However, when the British government banned slavery, the status quo was upset. A group of Boers refused to remain under British sovereignty and moved north to form their own settled community. This became known as the Great Trek and is recalled through events such as the murder of Petritif, the Battle of Blood River, and is commemorated by the towering Fortracker Monument in Pretoria. There has been some talk of destroying this tower, um, but so far it's still there and I hope it does stay. This did not seem to concern Britain too much until the discovery of diamonds and gold in Kimberley, Johannesburg and Pilgrim's Rest from around 1870 onwards. Simultaneously, what became known as the Scramble for Africa started with Portugal laying claim to Angola on the west and Portuguese East Africa now Mozambique on the east, whilst Germany claimed what is now Namibia on the west and Tanzania on the east. Discussions in Berlin in 1884 and 85 confirmed the split of the southern coastal and central parts of the African continent. During the negotiations and subsequent discussions, Britain relinquished sovereignty to Germany of southwest Africa and Namibia, except for Wolfus Bay, a small enclave which was surrounded by German territory. This territory remains under South African control today. Having given the Boers their independence in 1852 and 1854 through the signing of the Sand River and Bloemfontein Conventions, in 1877, Britain attempted to bring the discovered gold and diamond fields back under British control. War broke out in 1880 and Britain lost what became known as the First Anglo-Boer War, acknowledging once again the independence of the Boer territories of the Orange Free State and the Transvaal or Zuid-Afrikaanse Republic. Meanwhile, Cecil John Rhodes, head of De Beers Mining and Premier of the Cape Colony, sponsored excursions into the territory north of the Transvaal and, under the auspices of the British South Africa Company, occupied with Britain's consent southern and northern Rhodesia. 
today's Zimbabwe and Zambia, respectively, giving rise to the idea of painting the map of Africa red from Cape Town to Cairo. Missionaries had ensured that Britain had control of the other territories of Nyasaland or Malawi, Bechuanaland, Botswana, Swaziland and Lesotho, ensuring the, British, the Boers could not claim them. The Boers were thus landlocked and desired a route to the coast which Britain did not control. Their only option, apart from the route through the Cape, was the Delagoa Bay line through Portuguese East Africa. If the Boers were to make greater use of the Delagoa line, and with the gold already discovered in the Transvaal, the fear was that they would become too dominant in the area and prove a threat to Britain. Although the motherland appeared relatively unfazed by the Boer position, those in the Cape, particularly with business interests in the Transvaal, such as Rhodes, pushed Britain to act. They found support in then Prime Minister Joseph Chamberlain, and in due course, the various posturings led to the outbreak of the Second Anglo-Boer War in 1899, which is the one we most commonly know about. By 1902, the two Boer republics were British colonies and were granted responsible government in 1906 and 1907, with union of the four white colonies following in 1910. In 1910, the map of Southern Africa was as follows. The British territories consisted of the Union, Bechuanaland, Swaziland, Lesotho, with Southern and Northern Rhodesia under direct control of the British South Africa Company, all overseen by a Governor-General, whilst Nyasaland had its own Governor. Portugal had Portuguese East Africa and Angola, and Germany had South West Africa. Of these territories, the Union was the only relatively self-governing territory and was classified as a Dominion. It was responsible for its own internal policies, but dependent on Britain for foreign policy. The British Empire seemed firmly in place in Southern Africa. However, the outbreak of war in 1914 was to see Britain's position challenged and can be identified as the first real attempt by South Africa to increase its territory. There had been attempts before, but these had failed. The South Africans had argued at the time of the Union talks that Bechuanaland, Swaziland and Lesotho be incorporated into the Union. However, Britain had felt it prudent to withhold such permission until the Union had shown it was able to manage its, itself. Ronald Hyam has writ um, written extensively on South Africa's attempt to incorporate these territories into its fold. As regularly as Union raised the issue, Britain rejected it perhaps subconsciously aware that if South Africans obtained control of the territory, it would jeopardize Britain's sovereignty in the region. Similarly, South Africa was keen to incorporate at least southern Rhodesia into the fold, and had the Boers under Louis Boerter not assumed power of the new union, leading to the Nationalist Party under J.B.M. Herzog being formed in opposition, southern Rhodesia may well have joined the union. However, by 1925, the deadline set for determining the future of the British South Africa Company territory, the population had voted against joining the Union for fear of having the Afrikaans language foisted upon them. The outbreak of the Great War was therefore a significant event in South Africa's attempt to obtain the territory it desired. The remainder of this talk will look at the war and how South Africa attempted to use it for expansionist reasons, as well as the outcome and the impact of this on the country's position in Africa subsequently. When war broke out in 1914, the Union of South Africa was automatically drawn into the fray due to its relationship with Britain. However, it was given the freedom to decide the extent to which it would be involved. Many English-speaking South Africans left for Europe at the first opportunity, but the Afrikaners or Boers were divided. 
support the empire or be neutral. The result was a civil war, which was won by the pro-empire group led by Prime Minister Louis Boerta and his deputy Jan Smuts. The civil war or rebellion had been triggered by the South African government's decision to invade German South West Africa. A pretext was found and after the rebellion was ended, the campaign started. Within six months, it was over and South Africa had possession of a territory it had des desired since the 1880s, although this still had to be ratified at the peace talks. The next move was to obtain the port of Delagoa Bay and the accompanying railway line. As Portugal, which controlled the territory, was an ally in the war, South Africa had to tread carefully. Smuts, as Minister of Defence, offered South Africa support in the campaign against the German general von Leto Vorbeck in German East Africa. The plan was to defeat the German commander and then effect an elaborate territorial swap which would result in South Africa obtaining the desired territory. However, Smuts did not take into account the egos of the Portuguese or the Belgians. The Belgians proved wily and rushed to occupy Tabora and refused to move from it despite all Smuts's arguments. The Belgians were fearful of South African expansion into the Katanga area, which was rich in minerals, and felt that by holding on to Tabora, they would strengthen their hand at the bargaining table when the spoils of war were divided. Smuts himself led the South African troops in German East Africa, but from the beginning had to revise his plans. He had hoped that South Africa would assume complete control of the military operations in East Africa and would give the country a greater claim over its future. However, due to a misunderstanding of how British military reserves worked, South Africa was unable to supply the requisite number of troops and therefore felt it imprudent to demand complete control of the campaign, which remained British. Smuts's next step, as previously mentioned, was personally, as head of the South African Defence Force, to lead the troops in East Africa. He was able to use this position effectively from a political point of view, claiming that the campaign was won when von Leto Vorbeck moved out of German East African territory. Von Leto Vorbeck remained undefeated, but it was difficult for the subsequent commanders to counteract Smuts, who was by then in Britain and meeting with the inner circle directing the war. From this position, he had General Hoskins, his replacement, removed after three months for being ineffective. The reality was that Hoskins was repairing the supply lines which Smuts had neglected, and further the rainy season prevented such movement. Needless to say, these points, neither of these points featured in Smuts's case for removing Hoskins and having re him replaced by the South African von Deerfinter, Smuts's number two. Von Deerfinter was to see the campaign through to the end. Another thing Smuts did to ensure a greater South African say over the future of East Africa at the end of the war was to use South African police to control the capital Dar es Salaam once it had been secured from German control. However, once he had secured that change in command, Smuts did nothing further to promote South Africa's interests in the German East African colony until the peace talks in 1918-9 when Louis Boerter arrived in Europe. The reasons for this are outside the scope of this paper, but once Boerter had arrived, Smuts refound his focus on South African affairs and moved to fulfill the country's desire for expansion. During his time in Britain, and once he was on the British War Cabinet, Smuts worked on the mandate system, which, if everything went according to plan, would see German South West Africa given to South Africa. Again, Smuts had to modify his plans when American President Woodrow Wilson took a slightly different view on the mandate system. 
as Smuts had made no mention of South Africa's desire to obtain German East Africa or even Delagoa Bay during discussions preceding the peace, once the talks began, it was difficult to do so. He also talked South Africa into a corner when he announced that if South Africa did not get German Southwest Africa, which it was making a claim for, Louis Boerter would not be able to remain Prime Minister. The threat was taken seriously, as the alternative was the nationalist anti-British leader J.B.M. Herzog. Smuts therefore set about obtaining Delagoa Bay clandestinely. At a dinner with his friend Leo Amory, who was also Under Secretary of State for Colonies and Lord Milner's protege, Milner was Secretary of State for the Colonies, Smuts set out his desire, and following a discussion between Milner and Amory, a three-way territorial swap was formulated. And I'm going to try and explain that to you. South Africa would obtain Delagoa Bay to the Zambezi River. Some sources have the Limpopo, and if you actually look at the maps, there's a bit of a dispute around that, um, which is going to require further investigation. But it just shows South Africa's developments and its expansion for empire. In exchange for this and for territory, Portugal would cede to the Belgians on the West African coast, uh, would cede to the Belgians the West African coast territory around the Congo River. In exchange for this, um, sorry, Portugal would receive the Kionga Triangle it had desired from East Africa um, since the 1880s from Germany. For effecting, uh, for effecting this exchange, Britain would obtain Rwanda and Burundi, which had been allocated to Belgium as mandated territories. Despite Portugal's internal financial difficulties, it was felt any loss of territory, irrespective of what it would gain in compensation, would be unacceptable to the voting public, and so they declined the swap. South Africa's attempt to covertly extend its territory legitimately failed, and other means would have to be found. A few years later, in 1923, Southern Rhodesia officially refused to join the Union of South Africa, and so the country's direct chances of extending its borders came to an end. Since then, South Africa has sought to extend its influence through other means, and these have been relatively successful, not least because of its geographical position. In 1924, South African politics became dominated by the nationalists under J.B.M. Herzog, and the country's focus turned inward until the 1930s when Herzog was forced to form a coalition government with Smuts to deal with the international financial slump. And from 1939, Smuts again became prime minister when South Africa entered World War II, supporting Britain. What South Africa hoped to obtain from participating in this war is currently being investigated. But as with the First World War, it is unlikely that the public reasons given were the only ones. Smuts was too wily for that. In 1948, Smuts was again defeated by the nationalists, and this time Dr. D.F. Malan became Prime Minister, known for implementing apartheid. His victory was to usher in apartheid, which lasted until 1994, when Nelson Mandela became President of the new or democratic South Africa. It was during the apartheid years that the South African Empire began to re-emerge, however not through formal territorial occupation, but through the dominance of trade and economics particularly after many colonies gained their independence in the late 1950s and 60s. Numerous countries were reliant on South Africa for access to the rest of the world, especially Botswana, Bechuanaland, Lesotho and Swaziland, Southern Rhodesia, Zimbabwe and Malawi Nyasaland. Although they had access through other territories, these were unstable or undeveloped, and so with existing routes through South Africa, they became reliant on these.
South Africa also dominated these territories and others, such as Mozambique, because of trade. They imported goods, such as maize from South Africa, and employment. Many men found work, and still do, on the South African gold mines. Despite apartheid's premise of separateness, the various governments were reliant on the goodwill of its neighbours. However, rather than work openly with countries, the South African government would again work covertly, supporting coups or propping up governments as the situation demanded. Although not obvious, one could argue that the South African empire was still in development. It could not come clean or into the open due to the international outcry there would be. How close South Africa and Rhodesia came to joining forces when Ian Smith was fighting to keep Robert Mugabe out of power in the, 18, in the 1980s is another area which is currently being investigated. More overtly was South Africa's control over the southern parts of Mozambique and Angola and its attempts in the 1970s and 1980s to bring these territories under its control. In both countries, South Africa moved to have hydroelectric schemes built in order to supply water and electricity to the northern parts of the Transvaal, now Mpumalanga, and Southwest Africa, respectively. These hydroelectric schemes tied the countries to each other and later gave the South African government the pretext it needed to get involved in the two Portuguese colonies' civil wars and Portugal, which remained fearful of South Africa's intents concerning its African colonies, had little choice but to accept South African support to maintain its African empire. External forces, however, ensured that South Africa would not be able to obtain control of the territories, despite the close link, and as a result, the country has had to rely on its businessmen owning major industries and mines in neighboring countries to ensure its influence, and these interests extend up to Tanzania and beyond. Since 1994, the South African empire has again changed shape, and is now one of influence and ideal. Thabo Mbeki, previous president of South Africa, set up his vision for an African renaissance, which has recently taken a back seat. However, watching the country's international moves, the desire, and the desire to influence and control is still there. South Africa dominates SADC, the South African Southern African Development Community. The Namibian economy is integrally linked to the South African it was only when China, followed by South Africa, refused Mugabe a loan renewal that some change took place in Zimbabwe. South Africa has troops in Congo, amongst other territories, and fought an ideological battle with Nigeria and Egypt for the only African seat on the United Nations Security Council in 2007-8, when it was suggested that an African country be given a permanent seat on the Security Council. And finally, the struggle between the same three countries to host the World Cup this year could also be seen as part of South Africa's desire for an African empire. So has the case for a South African empire been proven or substantiated? To answer this question, one needs to look at the definition of empire and how this has changed over time. Britain had a physical empire in a similar way to the Romans and Ottomans, where territory was directly controlled from a metropolitan center using military force and other systems to control the territory. However, since the arrival of the USA on the international scene during World War I and the advent of the USSR, the control of territory took on a different hue, and I would argue so did the term empire. The common denominator or theme is control. More recent empires are therefore seen in the countries forming part of the Monroe Doctrine and territories which have US military bases on them. Similarly, the Russian Empire consisted and still does of similar territories, 
although some less willing than others if we take Chechnya into consideration. The Commonwealth of Nations, of which the Queen of Great Britain is the head, could be seen as a continuation of the British Empire, although one where the nations are more equal in their relationships than in those of the USA or Russian empires. Similarly, the Chinese Empire is growing as it supports more and more developing nations to the benefit of the motherland. If it is accepted that these four empires mentioned are indeed empires, then it is in the same vein that I argue South Africa is attempting to build an empire for itself. The fact that it has not yet succeeded is due to the economic strength and ideological reach of the four dominating empires and that South Africa is directly a subservient within two, the American and Commonwealth, and with a more complex link to the other two, the ruling ANC having received support from the USSR in its struggle against apartheid and now working alongside China for influence and control over the same African territories. What has driven South Africa over these past four centuries to desire expansion? This is a more difficult question to answer. The idea of a South African empire has never been articulated as far as I know by any politician or as directly as I have set out today. But the idea of empire does, not, does seem to have been latent as I have discovered in tentatively putting forward my thoughts prior to today. My suggestion of a South African empire has not yet been shot down as ludicrous, so why is this? The answer, I think, lies in aspects of South Africa's involvement in World War I, the closest the country ever got to expanding territorially. It has been individuals in significant positions who have worked for extending South Africa's influence territorially and ideologically. These men, and they have all been men, have also been known to have a rebellious streak in them, Right from the early days of van der Stel and others, many have stood above their fellow men in various ways and have not always been understood by their countrymen or other politicians. And there we have Smuts Verbut, known as the architect of apartheid, P.W. Buerta, Mandela, and Mbeki. Opportunities have been sought to correct mistakes of the past. Bringing German Southwest Africa into the fold corrected the decision made in the 1880s to give the, the territory to Germany to show Britain was not only after territorial gain. The attempt to obtain Delagoa Bay can be seen in the same light as can the subsequent attempts to obtain control of Mozambique. Psychologists can probably better address the reasons behind South Africa's desiring to correct age-old dreams better than the historian but there does appear to be a latent long-term memory within South Africans of all races to control and expand their influence. Shaka, Mzilikudzi, and Dingon all spring to mind, but that is to digress on another story. South Africans have also been clandestine in their empire-building attempts. Again, perhaps psychologists are best placed to explain this, but for the historian, the evidence is there. Irrespective of why South Africa desired an empire, it is clear that it is clear that throughout its history, various leaders have sought to build one, so far without success. Thank you very much. This event was recorded live on the 8th of April 2010 at the National Archives, Kew. This podcast is copyright to the National Archives. All rights reserved.